good to be with all of you this morning. My name is Trevor. It is Pentecost Sunday. And uh, who's excited about Pentecost Sunday? Who's excited about tacos? I'm not thrilled with that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not thrilled that tacos got more than the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's try Who's excited about Pentecost Sunday? Okay, I like that. Okay. And tacos? Okay, they're good. That's much better. Um, it's good to be with all of you this morning. My name is Trevor, as I already said. Hey, if you have a Bible, would you open up to Romans chapter 8? And I really do hope that you have a Bible in front of you because uh, as a church, um, even on, on, on days like today, Pentecost Sunday, we really want to be teaching and proclaiming God's word. I mean, I'm up here this morning, but the authority of this particular sermon doesn't emerge from me. Uh, it doesn't at all. It emerges from God through his word. And so if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 8 is the right place to open up to, and that is the place where we will be diving into in just a few moments. If you, are, if you heard the word Pentecost, and are not sure what Pentecost is, or maybe you came out of a church tradition that didn't celebrate Pentecost. Pentecost is the day where we celebrate that God has given his Holy Spirit to live inside of his people. It is the day that marks the birth of God's collective church in the New Testament. And so if you walk through the church calendar, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. He comes to us uh, at Christmas time. We celebrate the life of Christ, the death of Christ on Good Friday, the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. Last week, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And then this week, we celebrate the, the gift of God's Holy Spirit to us. You can read more about Pentecost, specifically what happens when, uh, when Jesus' disciples are all together in um, one place. And in Acts chapter 2, suddenly, the text says, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. In Acts chapter 2, they're gathered together and they're waiting on this promise that Jesus has made, namely that as Jesus ascends into heaven, what, what he promises is that he's going to be present in them by his Holy Spirit. And God fulfills that promise in Acts chapter 2 and on what we call Pentecost Sunday. God fulfills the promise that he chooses to not live just anywhere. God chooses to dwell in people. The Bible says that God does not dwell in, 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 in temples made of human hands, but instead God dwells in his people. If you are a Christian, God dwells in you. It's a great and glorious truth, and we're celebrating every year as we do. And so this morning for Pentecost Sunday, I want to talk about 
how the spirit that dwells in you, if you are a Christian, makes you different. Because if it is true that the spirit lives in you, then it should change everything. And we believe that it does. In our home, uh, as some of you know, we have a, a daughter and we have three boys. And, um, and, and our oldest daughter, yes, she, she'll, she tolerates Marvel movies. Um, but the boys consume them like they are addicted to them. A new Marvel movie seems to come out every other day. And I, we've got Spider-Man 26 or something coming out soon. And so that means that I consume and watch with my family a lot of superhero movies, a lot of Marvel movies. And in some of the Marvel movies, there are what are called origin stories. An origin story is the story or the version of a movie where you discover how the character that is the protagonist, that is the superhero, becomes that superhero. And it happens in a kind of a lot of different ways, right? You can be bitten by a spider or you can um, interact with the mysterious power of the tesseract or you can, um, you can be electrocuted or you can, uh, you can fall into a crazy lab experiment. And so what happens is through a multitude of ways in superhero movies, you have a character that lives and then uh, something happens and then typically they wake up the next morning or just after the subsequent event and there's a moment in almost every film where, where the, the person who's sort of ordinary, the ordinary hero, is just sort of made aware that things are different, right? They, they, all of a sudden, they can shoot a web or, or shoot power out of their finger or become extra strong when they get angry. Or there's a sort of moment where they recognize that what happened to them changes everything, that, the, that they'll never be the same after that moment. Pentecost is such a moment for us. It's a moment where in which you go, when, when you do not know Christ, God does not live in you, you go from sort of an ordinary human being, and then through faith in Christ, God makes you a new person and then dwells in you, and just like a superhero origin story, it changes everything. And so this morning, I want to tease out a few things that are true of you if you have the Spirit in you. And I do hope that you see these in the text, but more than anything, I hope you begin to meditate on them and think about them because they will change your life. They'll change the way that you think about your sin. They'll change the way that you endure, endure suffering. They'll change your sense of belonging to God. There's so much power in Pentecost and in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is going to, he's going to tease out and talk about the implications of what it means for you if the Spirit is in you. And so it's my hope that you would see the differences that the Spirit makes because the Spirit changes everything for us. And I hope you see that this morning. So please, Romans chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17. 
If you've got it in a, a digital on your phone, that's great. It's always good to have it physically because the physical Bible doesn't get distracted with text messages. All right. It's one of the benefits of a physical Bible uh, is no text messages, no, no fantasy notifications. Okay, here we go. Just God's word. Here we go. Romans chapter 8. The, the text about in Romans 8 is life through the Spirit, that, that Paul is talking about God giving the Holy Spirit and what it means to live life in the Spirit. And then in Romans 8, verse 11, the last thing that Paul has said is that, uh, in verse 11, he says that the Spirit is living in you who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your bodies because His Spirit lives in you. So the last thing Paul said in Romans 8, 11, the Spirit lives in you. Now verse 12, hope you're following along, verse 12 he says, therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So life and death. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Paul wanting the church in Rome to understand the difference the Spirit makes. And so this morning, I want to unpack that for a few moments together. These are three differences, three things that are different about you must be different about you, are different about you, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. At the outset, here's what they'll be if you're taking notes, that, that if you have the Spirit in you, you are a combatant. Secondly, if you have the Spirit in you, you are a child. And thirdly, if you have the Spirit in you, you are a co-heir. Combatant, child, co-heir. These are things that are true of you if you have the Spirit in you. So let's begin with that first one. You are a combatant. And by here, by combatant, I mean one who is engaged in combat. Now, maybe you didn't think, I, I don't, as a Christian, I don't think of myself as someone who's in combat. I want you to, I want, I want to help you see this. 
You are in combat. You are a combatant if you have the Spirit in you. In verse 12, Paul begins by saying, we are obligated. And the word obligated here in Romans, 12, uh, Romans 8, 12 is the word for debt. We are in debt. And we are in, what he means is, what he wants to say is we are in debt to God. Now, indebtedness to God is not like, uh, it's not like even Stephen, right, where you get something, you pay back something. It's not a system of payback. Rather, to be in debt to God, to be obligated to God, is to have a posture before God that says, based on what you have done for me, I, I want to live in, in response to you, faithfully to you. Maybe someone's done something incredibly nice for you, and you feel obligated, and you can't pay them back. You can't. You can't pay them back. So you'll say something like this. You'll say, can I just... Can I buy you a meal? Can I bring you dinner? Can I uh, uh, watch your dog or watch your kids? Can I do you a favor? And they'll say, no, it's not necessary. And you'll say, it's the least I can do. And what you mean by that is, I recognize that I can't pay you back. That's not how this works. What you've done is so great. But I, I, want, I feel obligated to, to serve in some way based on what you have done. I, I have so much gratitude for what you have done that I'm obligated now, as Christians, we have been saved from God's judgment, from God's wrath, from hell. We have been saved and delivered and forgiven from our sin. And because of that gift, which we couldn't earn and we don't deserve, we live as people who say, God, you could have condemned me. Instead, you rescued me. I am now obligated to you. Because of how thankful we are, as we've said before, the Christian life should be one giant thank you card to God. We're obligated to God, not to, this is Paul's point, not to the flesh. Did you see that? He says we are obligated not to the flesh. And that word flesh is the word sarks. It means our sinful nature. As Christians, we are obligated not to follow the path of our sinful nature. Because we know, we know that life comes from fighting our sin, not from following our sin. Amen? Amen. Life comes, you want to have life? Then you, have, you must fight against your sin, not follow it wherever it wants to go. That following of sin, we know, leads to death. And so we are obligated out of gratitude for what God has done for us. We are obligated to live for him. Now, what does this look like? Verse 13b, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Do you see that? Do you see what he says there? He says, if... If by the Spirit, you have the Spirit in you, if by the Spirit you do what you put to death, you're, you're to be putting something to death, what is that? The misdeeds of the body. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In other words, if you have the Spirit in you, you are to be a combatant, you are to be killing your sin. 
Brothers and sisters, I I hope that you understand this. I hope that the Spirit brings about conviction in you about this. That if you are a Christian, you must make your sin your enemy. It's not your friend. Can't be a roommate you live with. It wants to kill you. Spirit-filled Christians are combatants because they sense that there is a battle and they sense a call to wage war against their sin. They sense a call to fight against their sin. As Christians, we have a sinful nature. We know what it's like. Man, it's so easy to sin, isn't it? With our eyes, it's so easy to become greedy. With our eyes, it's so easy to lust. With our hands, it's so easy to steal. With our hands, it's so easy to type in that sight. With our, our, our mouths, it's so easy to cut down our spouses, to undercut our children, to curse out that neighbor, to curse out that person on the freeway. It is so easy to sin with our tongues and our hands and our eyes. It's so easy to do. And yet, we must become, we are combatants who must put our sin to death. We are always committed to putting our sin to death. The famous John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the Christian life. You become a Christian, you get God's spirit, he he opens up a pathway in front of you and you look around your life and you see sin and then you are committed to, by the spirit, putting it to death. I know that I preach this message in a church filled with people who would say, Pastor Trevor, it's really hard not to lust. It's really hard not to get angry. It's really hard to control my tongue. It's really hard. It's really hard to speak the truth. It's easier to go along. It's really hard to be patient with my family. I want you to see that the battle that you are facing, the battle itself points to life in Christ. That the battle reminds you who you are. It is the spirit at work in you that helps you in your fight. I hope you see this in 13. If by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit, you... So notice in the text that Paul wants you to know, how do I fight against my sin? I I do it. I do it. You got to do it. You have to be a combatant. You have to, but you do it by the power of the Spirit in you. The Spirit makes you take your sin seriously. The Spirit helps you to see your sin as sin. The Spirit helps you to see that it is ultimately powerless. The the Spirit helps you apply Jesus' words. The Spirit helps you to hate your sin. The Spirit helps you to confess it. These are all works of the Spirit in you. And the Spirit helps you kill your sin, but you have to commit to killing it. Your pride, your anger, your workaholism, 
your impatience, your self-righteousness, if left unchecked, it will destroy you and your family. This is, a, this is a warning. If you have stopped fighting against your sin, you ought to be, I, I'm, I'm praying and hoping that what you see is, if you have stopped fighting against your sin, what you desperately need is eyes to see once again that God's spirit lives in you. And if you have no desire to fight against your sin, you need to become a Christian. Ask the Spirit to help you see, to equip you, to be empowered to fight. But you have to fight. If you have the Spirit, you are a combatant. And you must seek to kill your sin by the power of the Spirit. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you alert to the dangers of the sin in your life, or have you become complacent? Are you in the battle? Do you have this sense that you're here this morning, and you're like, I am in the battle. I am constantly fighting against my sin. If so, be encouraged. Are you committed to the fight? Or are you trying to do that thing where you're like, ah, I'll sing some songs, I'll call myself a Christian, and then, you know, when no one's looking, I'm just going to follow my sin wherever it wants to take me. I hope that you would become a person who would be able to pray, Lord, because I am in you and you are in me and your spirit is in me, the power in me exists to wage war against my sin. It is your spirit. Help me fight. Help me combat it. Help me kill that which, that which seeks to destroy me. So first, you are a combatant. I'm not, I, I hope, I just, I, I want to be real clear. As a church, we are going to be people who wage war against our sin. If you want a church that says, be Christian and be happy with your sin, we're not the church for you. Secondly, if you have the spirit in you, you are God's child. If you have the spirit in you, you are God's child. Verse 14 for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the what? Children of God. So, so, so what is Paul saying? He says, if you are in combat, if you are led into life by the Spirit, you are a child of God. Let me say it this way. We do not battle against our sin to belong to God. We battle against our sin because we belong to God. You get this difference, this changes everything. I don't fight against my sin so that God will say, now I accept you. I fight against my sin because God accepted me on the cross. The power comes from what he's done, not what you earn. So we don't battle to belong, we battle because we belong, and we battle because we are God's children. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. If you are in Christ, God lives in you. You don't have to wonder if you belong. And what happens in verse 15 is it says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. In the ancient world, the slave that was connected to the family would go to bed at night wondering in the morning if they were going to belong the next day. 
They lived in a state of, I'm not really sure if I belong or not. I'm not really sure if I belong or not. That was the posture of the slave in the ancient world. But, but who doesn't have that posture? The son doesn't. The child does not go to bed wondering if they'll belong to the family in the morning. Or if they do, then they are a part of a very broken home. Children go to bed at night and, uh, and should wake up in the morning knowing that no matter what has happened, they are still a part of the family. And that's what, that's what Paul says. If you have God's spirit, you are led by the spirit, you have been adopted by God. God has adopted you. He's not just your creator, he's your father. When you become a Christian, your creator becomes your father. So we sang this song, right? We sing, I am a child of God. When we sing that song, what, what we are singing is, if you are a Christian, then you are a child of God. If you are not a Christian, you are not God's child. You become God's child when you receive Christ and are filled with his spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Because when we receive Christ, when we turn from our sin, we trust in Jesus, we become children of God. The spirit of adoption gives us a place in God's family so that we don't have to wonder anymore where we stand with God. If you have God's spirit in you, you don't have to go to sleep tonight wondering if you belong to God in the morning. You're his child. He's adopted you. Recently, I read a story of uh, a, a girl named Macy. Macy lost her father when she was two years old. And growing up, her life with her mother was not stable. Her mother was a drug addict and uh, was abusing her and was on the receiving end of lots of domestic violence. When Macy was a toddler, she had a very high fever that resulted in her becoming deaf. School was stressful for Macy. She was constantly bullied. She missed lots of days of school at a time because her mother would rarely wake up from her drug addiction and her drug uh, 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 issues. She'd rarely wake up to get her to the bus on time. Mom wouldn't feed her breakfast. Mom wouldn't get her dressed. Her deaf daughter. Her mom got put in jail, and Macy was placed in temporary custody with her aunt. And it was there that things began to unravel. Her aunt really didn't want her around. Her father had died. Her mother, again, like I said, was in jail. And when her mother got out of jail, her mother entered into a halfway home where her mother died of a drug overdose when Macy was just 11 years old. At 15 years old, Macy's aunt had had enough, kicked her into the foster care system, which caused her to feel more isolated. And she was placed into a group home that provided only the basics, food, shelter, and medical care. So she had food, 
shelter, medical care, but she did not have love. And Macy began to what they call in the in the foster care adoption system, she began to age out of the system. This is when a child is getting closer to 18. And once they're at 18, they're not considered adoptable. So Macy, as she's uh, getting older, she begins to give up hope of ever being adopted. And so she changed her paperwork to reflect her hope. She changed her permanency plan to include just foster care, not adoption. Because as she got older, she thought, there's just, I'm, it's, it's too late for me. Dad died, mom died, aunt doesn't want me, foster care system doesn't love me, I'm getting too old, this is what my life is like. There's a woman who worked at Macy's high school office named Gigi. And Macy was talking to Gigi, and Macy said to Gigi, she said, I just need to be realistic. No one wants to adopt me. Who would want me? And it was at that phrase, who would want me, that Gigi began to, began, something began to stir in her. She went to her family, talked to them, and said, hey, I, I feel a strong sense that we should consider giving Macy what she doesn't have. And so they began this process as a family. And on June 8th, six weeks before Macy turned 18, she was adopted. And Gigi, when telling the story, said, Macy, Macy needed love and acceptance and the knowledge that she would never be given up on if she was seven years old or 17 years old. Macy got adopted. And with adoption came these perks and privileges. And what I was reflecting on was that what's true for Macy is true and even more real for us who are Christians. In Christ, you have security, forgiveness, God's presence, God's power, and more. And all of those things, the Spirit of God gives to you. Verse 15 the spirit you received doesn't make you slaves. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Great late theologian J.I. Packer once said, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has God as their father. The spirit brings that privilege. It is the highest blessing Sometimes we speak of legal language. We talk about justification or forgiveness of sins or pardon. These are all good, wonderful ways of speaking. But adoption declares that God is your father. Hinduism has a thousand names for God. None of them come close to Abba, Father. God is your father. Now I know when, as soon as I say that, some of you are like, hold on. I had a bad father. That's a problematic way of thinking about things. I understand that some of you, you feel that way. Um, I, I always want to say, God is our father. And not only that, anytime any father is remotely good as a father, it only points to our need of good fathers and the one who we would call a good, good father. 
And I often think about Psalm 27.10, which says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. That's a good verse if you have people in your life who have broken parents. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. God will receive you. He will not abandon you. He loves you. He cares for you. And, and we cry out by his spirit in us, Abba, Father. When we are struggling, when we are having a difficult time, when we're at our lowest, what do we do? We cry out, Father, help me. Help me to, start, to stop sinning. Help me to fight against my sin. Help me to know who I am. Help me to know the privileges of your presence in me. Help me to know, as Michelle prayed earlier, that I am not alone. You are God's child. I hope you know that security. That security is powerful. Okay, so that's the second. The third difference, if you have the spirit in you, you are a co-heir with Christ. Verse 17. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If you have the Spirit of God in you, you are a co-heir with Christ. What is, a, uh, what is an heir or a co-heir, right? We, we know this word when you have someone who's very, very rich and they've got a large inheritance that's tucked away somewhere and we say, oh, that person is the heir of the Rockefeller family or that kid with the name who is unpronounceable is the heir of the Musk family or, or the heir of the Gates family. We, we talk about heirs as, though, as those who are children of someone with an inheritance, but being an heir often means that the inheritance isn't available to you just yet. And so Paul says you have the spirit of God in you, which makes you a child. And if you're a child, then you are an heir. God has an inheritance. You are an heir to that inheritance and co-heirs with Christ. So an heir knows who they are and what's coming ahead. And in the Bible, the greatest inheritance God could give you is himself. But to be a Christian means we don't have all the benefits yet but we know we will have them. And that gets us through suffering. Look at the end of 17. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We don't have all the benefits, but we know that I am an heir. If I'm a child, I'm an heir. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I have an inheritance. I know who I am. I know what awaits me. Therefore, I can... Endure my suffering. Christ suffered. We do too. Christ is glorified and we will share in life with him if we have his spirit in us. There is a famous kind of preaching that exists in our world. You can find it on most television stations called the prosperity gospel. And it declares something as ludicrous as, if you're a Christian, there's no suffering. Well, that's ridiculous. If you're paying attention this morning, feel free to highlight, circle, underline Romans 8, 17. I'm an heir, a co-heir, if I share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 
Paul says suffering is part of the Christian journey. Now, now no one here wants suffering. I, I know that if I had a, if I said, hey, we're taking sign-ups for suffering after, feel free to come forward and put your name down, no one's going to write their name in that, right? Like, no one wants suffering. In fact, I guarantee that almost all of you join with me in my desire for an easy life. And the Spirit could give you an easy life, but often the Spirit has us go through suffering because through that suffering... And in that suffering, we are able to meet with God. And by that suffering, we are able to experience redemption that leads to glory. Your suffering is part of your road to glory. And what keeps you in the midst of suffering is the spirit that makes you a combatant, the spirit that makes you a child, the spirit that makes you a co-heir. That spirit points you to your inheritance. And I just want to do that as we end this morning. I want you to see and imagine and recognize your inheritance. Imagine you've got a friend. A friend who hits on the mega million lottery. I don't know what it is recently. Say it's $150 million. They've got the winning ticket, $150 million. And now what they have to do to pick up their $150 million is they got to drive to downtown L.A. to pick up their check. And so they get in their 2007 Honda Civic, and they're driving to downtown L.A., and right as they hit that 110-10, you know, intersection, the, the engine starts to sputter. They're able to get off the freeway just barely, pull over, Steam coming from the engine. They're a mile away from the office. They tinker with things and they can't figure it out. And they call you on the phone. And you answer the phone, you say, what's going on? And they say, you're never going to guess what happened. And you're thinking, oh my, did you not win the lottery? Is that what happened? You, you weren't actually a winner? You, you didn't have the ticket? And they go, no. My 2007 Honda Civic broke down. And you go, oh, where, where did it break down? You're like, oh, I got to walk a mile. It's like 97 degrees in downtown L.A. I got to walk a mile to go get my $150 million check. And you're like, well, I don't understand why you're frustrated. Well, I'm frustrated because my 2007 Honda Civic is broken down. It's unfixable. And it's a 2007 Honda Civic. They only made those one year. And you might be thinking to yourself, I, I hear you, and it's not always appropriate to do this, but maybe in this moment I just want to remind you, you're only a mile away. You're a mile away from your inheritance. You're a mile away from all the gifts, all the pleasure, all the joy, all the satisfaction, the perfection of being with God, him who is your inheritance, is just a mile away. And some of us are complaining about our civic breaking down. Your car may be broken. Your suffering may be way worse than that. I do not mean to trivialize your suffering. But I want to say, keep going. There is a rich inheritance and an eternal glory just ahead. 
You are a co-heir with Christ. As Winston Churchill once said, if you're going through hell, keep going. So if you're struggling, remember you have the Spirit of God in you, and though you feel alone, you are never alone. Remember that the sin that you're struggling with is good to struggle with and that you have God's spirit in you. Be killing sin or it be killing you. Remember you are adopted. You are a child of God. Your status does not change in the morning. Remember you are a co-heir with Christ. All of the inheritance offered from God to you is available in and through Christ by his spirit. Now throughout this sermon... As we close, I have said every single time, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then you are a combatant, you are a child, you are a co-heir. And I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you do not have the Spirit of God in you, you, you don't hate your sin, you don't really want to fight against it, you become, you're complacent towards it. If you're here, you don't really love Jesus, you don't really want to follow him, if you, if you feel like you're an outsider, that's okay. I want you to see the gift that God has made available to you this morning in and through Jesus. If you're here this morning and you want God's spirit in you against your sin, you want to know that you're a child of God, you want to be a co-heir with God, you want those promises now and forever, it is available to you by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who rose again on the third day, and is Lord and Savior of all. So if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I hope this morning you would become one. And in your receiving of Christ this morning, you would receive all the gifts that he has for you by the Spirit. The Spirit makes you different. I hope you are able to walk in the beauty of that difference as we move ahead. Let's pray. Lord, I first want to pray for those who are here who do not have the Spirit of God in them. And maybe they sense this morning that you have been knocking on the door of their hearts, that they are tired of losing the battle to their sin. They are tired of not knowing where they stand with you. They are tired of worrying about what happens on the other side of this life. And I pray that this morning you would make Jesus so real to them that they would turn from their sin and turn to you and receive you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, we ask your spirit to blow into this congregation this Sunday morning, right here, right now. Blow into our lives the promises that we are combatants against our sin. We are children. We are co-heirs. Make these promises so real to us that it explodes in worship of your son, Jesus. We long to be filled with the spirit for the beauty and the confidence that it provides in our lives, for the mission that you have called us to. We thank you that you have made us your children, that you have adopted us into your family, that you call us by name, and you carry us on to completion. It's in your name we pray. Amen.